All right, can you say something? I'm just going to test it. Testing, one, two, three. You know, I think my great-grandfather, I heard stories about him having, you know, made a fortune but losing it in the, the casino or just making, like, bad investments. So I think my grandfather and father were very much of the opinion that if you find something steady and stable and stick with it, just take care of your family, you know, don't, don't rock the boat, so to speak, that you'll be okay, right? Hi, everyone. This is Rock the Boat, a podcast about Asian Americans charting unconventional career paths. Whether you're an entrepreneur, creative, or someone who's looking to break through a few ceilings, this podcast was made for you. We're your hosts, Lucia Liu and Lin Gui. Hey there, it's Lucia. Welcome to episode two of Rock the Boat. So this week, we speak with Chris Chung. He's the founder of Box.com, or one of the co-founders, at least. If you haven't heard of Box.com, they're an online and mobile wholesale retailer that offers direct delivery of bulk size packages, kind of like a Costco. They recently raised $111 million in their Series D. I wanted to chat with Chris because I was really curious about what being at the helm of a successful startup would look like and how he got there. So I got connected with him through a friend of a friend, and I got to hear Chris's life story. And wow, it's a heck of a story. In this episode, we speak to Chris about breaking rules, lots of them, and how they actually led him to a path of entrepreneurship. We talked to him about subverting the system and why it helped him succeed, his desire to build something from nothing with his own two hands, and his hopes for the future. So if you're someone who's interested in starting something on your own or aren't afraid to take the unconventional route, Chris's story will certainly inspire you. Just a quick word of warning, there's some strong language in this episode. I met Chris in a conference room at Boxed HQ in Soho, New York City. So I'm Chris. I'm a co-founder here at Boxed Wholesale. By most accounts, Chris was a pretty typical Asian-American guy. He was born in New York City, grew up in Jersey, and attended an ultra-competitive high school called J.P. Stevens. You can even say he was raised by stereotypical Asian parents. My parents took all these other responsibilities and, you know, took care of all the needs. Not necessarily all my wants, but took care of everything else just so my brother and I could just focus on studying, right? Like, given their path in life, they knew that education was the best way to get ahead. And, like, anything getting in the way of my education, uh, they would just, like, shuffle aside or just kind of take care of on their own. Since education was his parents' top priority, they made sure to assign Chris with plenty of math problems. To them, it was all about rigor, discipline, getting those reps in. They believed the reps would get Chris better grades, which would increase his chances of attending a name-brand university, which would then lead him down the path to becoming a doctor or a lawyer. It was like math class and then in middle school, so algebra or multiplication or, or something like that. The teacher would assign, let's say, all the even problems at the end of a particular chapter. Uh, but my dad would actually just go back and make me do all the odd ones and the next chapters. And it got to a point where he would just write his own questions for me because he felt after reading my, my, my textbook that the textbook wasn't hard enough. So he'd maybe go through all that and on top of that, I think a lot of family friends were actually uh, taking the Kumon classes outside of school. 
All right, for those of you who don't know what Kumon is, you're really lucky. It's a very popular tutoring center that originated from Japan. Asian parents would send their elementary school or middle school children to either the math or the reading class where they did extra problem sets on top of their normal schoolwork. Parents thought the extra work would help their kids practice for exams. Now, back to Chris. So um, instead of actually paying for me to go to Kumon, he would just photocopy all their textbooks and just make me do them as well. And so it was just like probably what they experience uh, in the Asian uh, education system, where it's just like a lot of rote practice, just like a lot of uh, after-school activities, just going through the same types of problems, yeah, just drilling it into. Never had time to hang out with friends, which is always like doing homework, whether from school or from my parents. That was probably the worst of it. There's no way in hell I was not going to be either like a doctor, lawyer, or just have some kind of like, you know, three letters after my name. <laughs> Sitting across the room from Chris, I could tell he was a very intelligent person. But Chris wasn't interested in academics. In high school, he saw through the dysfunctional systems and started to try his hand at negotiating his way out of work. This was really the first time that he showed he wasn't interested in playing by the rules. I think one time I asked my dad, hey, if you just have helped me do half of these math problems, I can get the A, you know, right? That's, that's, a, that's the main point. If you just like look at, look at it working backwards, like if the main goal is to get an A at the end of the year, right? then why not make this a family effort? And what did he say? He said, he said, fuck you. I mean, he didn't say fuck you. He said, he said no, you're doing all the work. But I think in that instance, uh, I kind of understood, okay, what he's trying to teach me is, are the principles, right? The hard work, integrity, right? Whereas the school system, you know, growing up in uh, Central Jersey, probably just valued, okay, what did you get at the end of the year? Doesn't necessarily value whether you intrinsically know that know the information or whether you retain it at all chris ended up attending college at johns hopkins but without the oversight of his parents he rebelled against the school system in computer science class for instance he'd copy someone else's code one time the school's algorithm picked it up and he got caught like the four years spent there, I pretty much got a degree in like cheating, lying, stealing, bullshitting. What? Yeah. All those kind of laddered up into, you know, whatever we needed to do to just, you know, get in, get out, just get ahead. Right? Yeah. So I guess the theme there was kind of like me learning to subvert the system. Hmm. Right. I didn't, I didn't want to play by the rules because, you know, yeah, in the, in the middle of my sophomore and junior year when I was solidly in computer science, you know, I, I didn't have a formal background in it uh, coming from high school where a lot of kids did take uh, computer science classes. Um, it felt akin to studying Spanish. The kids that, you know, have done this, you know, since they were like eight years old, that make games and programs at home for fun, that just do it in their spare time where you're just trying to learn the basics. I, I just wasn't going to be able to compete. So at yeah. what point were you just like, fuck the system? Probably around, probably around that time. Yeah. yeah. It was just, I was like, you know, if the deliverable was like, uh, like a file with letters that represent uh, code, like I could probably just get that from somebody, somebody else that's done this before. In his college days, he found ways to cheat the system so he could focus more on hanging out with friends. Perhaps that framework of thinking, of finding the cheat code, comes from Chris's love for video games and his disenchantment with the modern educational system. I can see how Chris's ability to spot opportunities attributed to his current success. 
However, it also got him into plenty of trouble. Despite Chris's effort to subvert the system, he barely graduated from Hopkins. You know, me cheating, lying, stealing, bullshitting didn't necessarily amount to like a 4.0 at all. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a vestige of me like being lazy as a kid or having other interests outside of academia. Like I want to, you know, whatever, play video games or, or read comic books. So anything to kind of increase my available time there and, you know, shirk away from my uh, responsibilities, uh, having to do homework or study for exams. I didn't know what to study. I think I wanted to study everything. I think I went in poli-sci, IR, and something else, right? I think my dream at that point was like, okay, I'll become a lawyer like my, my older cousin. And, you know, that was going to be my path. Uh, but I quickly found out that, you know, Hopkins seems like, seems a place where, okay, maybe you didn't get into an Ivy, but you're going to work your ass off and kind of like maybe throw all the other kids and just like kind of prove yourself. I think everybody there pretty much had a, had a chip on their shoulder. In the end, what happened was I ended up with an economics degree, barely graduating. I mean, it was like 2.09. Oh my God. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Once Chris graduated, he moved back to Jersey to work for his old employer at a document research company. It's just a regular job, nothing particularly entrepreneurial. But while Chris was there, his boss, whose background was in film, became interested in starting an e-commerce company. He asked Chris for help. So that was the first instance I got of uh, entrepreneurship where, okay, nothing's, nothing's been settled. Let's, we just have an idea. We have some capital. Let's, let's work on this, right? What does it take to set up a website? You know, what does it take to set up uh, inventory? And how do you manage inventory? What, do you, what does it take to set up marketing? How do you buy you know, Google AdWords? How do you do market research? What products are hot? How do you set up uh, a UPS account to get the boxes in and how do you ship stuff out? Who's going to manage customer service? And so I don't, I never thanked him for this and I never told him that was the first real instance of like, wow, with just an idea and with the right, you know, with the right interest in it, like you could, you could, you could do anything. You could just go at it. And, uh, it was quite a learning experience. And that was the first time I realized, Hey, you don't need to know everything. You know, I think, coming from a certain place where you don't know everything, you're able to look at it with fresh eyes. This was one of the turning points in Chris's life, where he realized that he could use his ability to spot opportunities for business purposes. But once again, his parents didn't approve. Shortly after that, I had a sit down with my dad, and he was just like, you can't, there's no way I paid X amount of dollars for your education, and you're making 10 bucks an hour doing this, right? You have to get a real job. Uh, I resisted at first, and so a little bit after that, he just, he's like, here, take this job, he works for the MTA. I'm like, okay. And so I worked for the MTA for a little bit. Um, not doing quite much, quite honestly. Uh, I was technically a contractor. I literally sat there and just collected a paycheck. Uh, so that was kind of rough. After a year of working at the MTA and feeling bored out of his mind, Chris had to get out. But due to the pressure he felt from his parents, he didn't start his own venture. Instead, he sought out jobs at various Fortune 500 companies, first as a sourcing analyst at Revlon and then a consultant at Goldman Sachs. He wasn't a huge fan of the corporate cultures there. They valued materialism and titles, while Chris valued something else. I valued 
what I could do with my two hands. I wanted to do something. I wanted to see what was possible, right? So actually during that time is when, uh, interestingly enough, I started a couple like, you know, just small side businesses. I was really passionate about, you know, just doing something outside of work that could like bring in, let's say, like some passive income because I really didn't want to work there, but they were paying me well. So in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, if I could build up a passive income stream that outpace my active income stream, I could just like quit, right? I could just like stay at home and just like focus on that full time. So I remember having gone to uh, see Twilight with my ex-girlfriend at the time. (laughs) Sitting amongst a sea of giggling women and their mothers, Chris developed an idea for his first side project. He spent months working nights and weekends from 7 p.m. to 2 to 3 a.m. in the morning designing Twilight t-shirts. I can tell that Chris's mild and calm demeanor belies his incredible drive. He started taking the lessons he learned from college and applied them to business. In 2009, Citi created a product called Virtual Credit Cards, which generated credit card numbers that expired after 24 hours. Online shopping was still at its infancy, and people didn't trust websites with their credit card numbers. The idea that Chris had was to use these fast-expiring credit cards to pay for Facebook ads. And when I realized that City Card had this system by which, you know, the credit card numbers would expire, I'm like, huh, me being a really young, naive, stupid kid, I was like, okay, what if I just pump credits into, you know, through the card into like Facebook advertising? If the credit card expires, they can't charge it. Because like I realized they, they couldn't charge, they would only charge after 48 hours. And so I was like pumping like thousands of dollars of free advertising using temporary credit card numbers into like Facebook's new advertising system to target people that actually liked Twilight t-shirts. And I would shoot them to my site and they eventually purchase. And so that was a fun ride. Did it work out? It worked for a little bit. Yeah, eventually Facebook caught on. They sent me a cease and desist. They said, you owe us like $11,000 because that's how much uh, advertising spend you've been pumping through. I kind of felt there was a faceless victim, that I wasn't really hurting anybody. I wanted to fight it. And it was kind of ironic because at the time, my, one of my friends at Goldman Sachs, he was like, hey, Chris, you know, Facebook's hiring. And there was this like credit fraud analyst position that he sent me, not knowing that I was doing all of this on the side. I thought that was really hilarious. I had made more than enough to cover it, thankfully. Talk but about the, rocking the boat. <laughs> yeah, seriously. The only thing I asked for that I wanted back was my actual Facebook account. I was like, hey, I'll pay you the money, no problem. I don't want any legal battles. I'll I'll pay whatever you want. Can I just have my Facebook account back? And they said no. (laughs) So they deactivated your account? Yeah, they deactivated my account. But I just, you know, signed up with another email address. One thing I admire about Chris from his story is his tenacity and his unwillingness to back down from challenges even if what he was doing was questionable. Traditionally, as Asian Americans, we're often taught to put our heads down and work hard. We're not taught to play the game, to figure out the rules of the system and find the cheat code, if you will. But Chris did, and he played the game well. I had another small business. Uh, At that time, I think Usher's... um, new video had come out where he was like pioneering this style with like blazers and jeans. I had found some skinny blazers on eBay, you know, bought some inventory of men's styles, 
started an LLC, started flipping, you know, I think I spent 500 bucks on a bunch of blazers first month, but flipped it for like a thousand. And then I, I put the thousand back into the business, bought a thousand dollars worth of blazers, flipped it for another thousand, and just kind of eventually, because uh, it caught up with my day job, had to bring on a partner. So I brought my partner on board. We were looking at just other ways to sell stuff on eBay because uh, we figured out with the right keywords and with the right branding strategy, you could, you could rebrand and sell anything. And so, you know, my dream of like building all these small passive streams of income were kind of coalescing into this idea uh, where I, whereby I can actually give up my day job. It was around this time that two major events changed history. One, the iPhone was released. And two, games like Farmville and Cafe Land on Facebook were starting to take off. Chris and his grade school friends, Chie Huang and Will Fong, saw an opportunity mobile social gaming. Any kind of startup, they always say you need a, you know, what, a hustler, a hipster, and a hacker. Like the three H's, right? So I ended up being the hipster because I'm the creative guy that focused on design. Will ended up being the hacker programming since he was 11 years old, and Che's obviously the hustler. Like, I've known Che since uh, middle school now. He was always, like, the funny guy, the outgoing guy. He was always a guy running for, I think, class president or student council this. I remember one time in middle school, he made me laugh so hard. I couldn't stop laughing, and I got detention. With their respective skills and the opportunity at hand, they took on the world of mobile gaming. With the new iPhone and with the advent of smartphones, like obviously everything was going to take off, right? So uh, I quit my job. Uh, Will quit his job. We started an office out of his basement. We bought some basic tables. I bought a MacBook. And we're like, okay, let's, let's create a game. We took about maybe like nine months in that basement uh, to create our first game, which was actually a parody of Office Life. It was called Office Heroes. <laughs> so instead of doing work, it was very, it was very Farmville-like, but instead of actually doing work, you'd be like paying your bills or shopping online or like chatting by the uh, water cooler and you'd be collecting these tasks. So Office Heroes kind of rose to the top. Uh, we were contacted by Apple. They loved it. Uh, we are contacted by a lot of marketing agencies, and we were actually contacted by Zynga, as you mentioned, like, kind of very early on. I think they were trying to build out their mobile team. They are trying to, like, get a suite of games going. I think they saw mobile as being the future. We saw the writing on the wall. It's like, okay, if they were willing to acquire us when we were just, like, three people, like, maybe we got something here. Uh, eventually, we took some money from a Japanese company, uh, built out a team of a lot of friends that just so happened to be uh, computer scientists that we love working with. Uh, grew the company to about 21 people and an office in Manhattan, which was great. And then, you know, before we knew it, within a year, Zynga came knocking again. Uh, there were a couple of other companies uh, in the mix, but we kind of saw them as like uh, the best able to compete on the mobile front, pre-IPO, which was huge. And we saw a great opportunity to kind of like take care of everybody. And we didn't necessarily want to keep doing games forever. Chris and his friends quickly found out that they didn't jive with the culture at Zynga. They knew they had to move on, but they weren't sure what they wanted to do next. And we probably iterated on about like nine games in the meantime, uh, none of which eventually launched. Uh, it was kind of sad. but. You know, at that point, uh, myself and the other co-founders here, we looked at ourselves and we're like, okay, we spent about two years here, but we're still pretty young, right? There's no reason why we can't, you know, make lightning strike again. 
in the end, we eventually settled on a real world problem, which was uh, something that we experienced having our own office. Two people having to just go all the way to 116th Street and like buy all this stuff from Costco and then having to bring it back and that would just take up their entire days. And we were just like, how come somebody just doesn't deliver this stuff? And so we quickly found ourselves in Che's garage fulfilling orders. Uh, I'm sure it pissed off his parents too, <laughs> a big degree. But uh, yeah, there were some days where there were no orders and then there were some days where, yeah, I mean, there weren't a lot of orders, but there was a lot, it was a lot for us. Like yeah. 10 orders seemed like a lot. Yeah. Um, and this is on... This is in addition to having to build out, like, uh, like an app. And that's how Box came about. And that's how Box came about. Um, but I think it was the day we got our very first order. You know, we had launched the app. I think we were starting some marketing at that time. And the fact that somebody out there downloaded the app, number one, trusted us enough to place an order, to put their credit card faith in us, like, that was... That was like a watershed moment. We're like, okay, if we can get one, we can get a million. <laughs> so, I love that mentality. Yeah. If we can get one, we can yeah, get Yeah, if million. we get one, we can get a million. We just have to convince everybody, yeah. Chris attributes much of Box.com's success to the close relationship of the three founders. They've all known each other since they were kids, and they grew up together in central Jersey. One of the very unique lucky things that we have at Box, right? That we have that long relationship with each other. Uh, whereas, you know, and I hear all these horror stories about other startups where, you know, the founder, you know, betrays the other founder or there's like shares at stake and, you know, people just are out for their own self-interest. Uh, I think I'm lucky in the, in the sense that, you know, I can go to sleep at night not having to worry about that, you know, that we all, you know, come from the same hometown. You know, I could walk to Will's house, I could walk to Chase's house and Chris and Box.com don't show any signs of slowing down. Boxed recently raised their $111 million Series D and rejected a $400 million offer from a national grocery chain called Kroger. I asked Chris what he thought would be next for Box.com. I guess in the beginning, you're running so fast, you don't really have time to kind of step back and reflect on everything that's been going on. Um, I mean, because our only our last company was only at max like 20, 21 people. That every increment past that, from here on out, is just always a surprise. You know, in the in the larger in the larger view, I'm, I feel like we're still on this like crazy roller coaster. We don't know where the end is. We don't know where the highs and lows are. But I guess in my old age now, I've kind of taken a step By the back. Way, you don't look yeah. any older than I know. Like I look twenty. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get that all the time. Uh, turning 37, box is big enough where it doesn't necessarily belong to any one person, let alone the co-founders. I think we've got it up and running. We kind of like let it free into the world where people can experience it on their own as a brand. It's been one hell of a ride for Chris. From the days of defrauding Facebook to now being at the helm of a half a billion dollar startup. So naturally, I wanted to know what was next for him. What drives him to keep pushing on? Is it that chip on his shoulder from his college days or something deeper? So I asked, and his answer surprised me. There are probably two instances in my life that kind of drove that kind of mentality. And I think the first was after having left school, I found out my girlfriend was cheating on me at the time. I remember very vividly being back in New Jersey, uh, sitting down with my friend in the parking lot. So I'm not feeling too well. 
you know, and he just gives me this one piece of advice that I'll, I'll never let go of. And he's like, you know, success will always be the best revenge. And I guess the second was, there was one time, so I found myself kind of sitting in an MRI machine. Uh, I thought I developed carpal tunnel syndrome, having just been at a test job for a bit. And then, you know, they had run all these tests from my, you know, wrist to elbow. It wasn't the elbow, it wasn't the shoulder, it wasn't the back. So the only place it all leads up to is like the brain. So I had checked my brain and they thought maybe it could potentially be like brain, brain cancer. It might've been tumors. I just remember sitting in the machine holding my ex's hand, just thinking about, man, life, life is quite short. Life is very short. Chris never followed up with his doctor, and fortunately feels fine now. But that realization that life is fleeting, it stuck with him. And he just like made me largely who I am now, because I totally wasn't like that before. You know, I think I was more, if anything, more carefree, just wanted to hang out with friends, kind of lazy. But it was really those two instances. And those happened within, I think, about two, three years of each other. So it was kind of like, when I look back on it, it feels like it was like, like a one-two punch, like back-to-back, that all of a sudden I became this, this person that had like not only a chip on the shoulder, but like an intense fast-forward life. I'm like, hey, if we're going to succeed, if we're going to get there, whatever success meant, like, like, let's get there yesterday. Let's get there yesterday. I can sense his impatience as he said those words. I couldn't help asking that question of myself. What if the same thing happened to me, and I had a time limit to my existence? What would I do? What would you do? What Chris wants to achieve extends far beyond just himself and his family. He wants to create something great for generations to come. Most of all, he wants to be remembered. Like, I looked at where my parents came from, and obviously, you know, them focusing on education, they wanted a stable existence for, for, for their children, uh, which, which I totally get. Uh, but there was just some part of me that thought, hey, you know, they, they, they sacrificed all this to come to a country where, you know, English wasn't their first language, that they had to go through all these struggles just to give me that kind of stability. I felt like I couldn't just, I want to take that gift and just like blow something out of it. You know, I yeah. blow something up. Uh, you know, my, I think my great grandfather, uh, I heard stories about him having, you know, made a fortune but losing it in, you know, in uh, the casino or just making like bad investments. Uh, so I think my grandfather and father were very much of the opinion that if you find something steady and stable and stick with it, just take care of your family, you know, don't, don't rock the boat, so to speak, um, that you'll be okay, right? But I just couldn't, there's just something in me, I just couldn't go the same path, you know? I, yeah. I didn't, I think the way, the few times that we did talk about my great-grandfather in that respect, you know, they looked at him and like, okay, you know, we could have we could all been rich or whatever, whatever that meant. Uh, not that I would do the same if I was like insanely wealthy, um, but there was something in me where I thought about what I want to do with my life. And I was like, you know, I didn't want to do this just for my family or my children, but I want to be like, you know, that most honored ancestor. Like, why not aim for that? As Asian Americans, we're often told to follow orders, put our heads down and work hard. 
We're told there are no shortcuts. We have to struggle to be successful and put ourselves in positions of discomfort. However, when we put our heads down and only focus on what's in front of us, we miss the bigger picture. We miss alternative paths. We miss opportunities. And we sell ourselves short. My key takeaway after speaking with Chris is that we don't have to believe what everyone tells us is the right path. We have the ability to create our own paths, make bold moves, hack the game of life, and come out swinging. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rock the Boat, and to Chris for sharing his drive, unwavering desire to create, willingness to play in the game of life, and for the ability to once in a while use the cheat code. We've included his bio and relevant links from our conversation in the show notes. Next time on Rock the Boat, we interview Charlotte Cho, the co-founder of SokoGlam, an e-commerce Korean beauty company with a community of over 240,000 people. Here's Charlotte. Yeah, we were definitely passionate about this, starting this um, little side project on the weekends, and we didn't think it was going to really go anywhere other than just being a side project. In the next episode, we speak to Charlotte about how she started SokoGlam as just a side project, her thoughts on Asian American representation, and why she encourages everyone to start something they're passionate about. Perhaps our conversation can help inspire you to start something of your own as well. Stay tuned. As always, please subscribe and share this episode with anyone who you think could benefit from it. And leave us a few kind words on iTunes. Those positive reviews help a ton. If you have suggestions for topics about the Asian American community or a personal story that you'd like to share, email us at hello at gorocktheboat.com. Finally, a big thanks to our audio editor, Molly Schulson, for mixing and editing this episode. We couldn't have done it without you. See you next time.